Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the price control podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 23rd, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host... Frank Pasquale, law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Rachel Sachs. Rachel is an academic fellow at Harvard Law School's Petri Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics, but not for much longer, as she is about to take up her new post on the faculty of the Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. Rachel's already impressive research lies at the intersection of patent law and health law, with a particular focus on problems of innovation and access and the ways in which the law helps or hinders these problems. Most importantly of all, however, she claims to have been a Twill listener from the very beginning. Big welcome to the pod, Rachel. Thank you so much, Nick, for that introduction, and thank you to both you and Frank for having me on today. A great pleasure. Well, talking of listeners, a quick diversion here. Frank and I received a very kind note from Professor Ben White, Director of the Australian Centre for Health Law Research in the Faculty of Law at the Queensland University of Technology, saying how much he and his colleagues enjoyed Twill. So we wanted to give a quick shout out to those of you in the Sunshine State, and indeed all our Australian listeners. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we will be having a special Australian guest relatively soon. So Excellent. So, Rachel, to uh, the first of uh, two really great, interestingly great articles that uh, you've posted. And this one is called Pricing Insurance, Prescription Drug Insurance as Innovation Incentive. And I quote here from the article where you say there's a fundamental problem, a legal problem. Quote, the primary laws that are set up expressly to incentivize innovation into pharmaceuticals, the patent system and features of the FDA regulatory system, are structured in a way that encourages companies to invest in the development of certain types of drugs to the exclusion of others. However, the therapies incentivized by the law do not necessarily address the diseases with the greatest burden on society. There is a mismatch between the drugs our health system most urgently needs and those we have set ourselves up to get. So could you open that up a little more for the listeners and uh, give us the background for uh, the legal and economic analysis that's going to follow? Absolutely. So when we think about the patent system and the FDA regulatory system and the kinds of drugs we're likely to get out of that, there are certain well-known biases that uh, scholars of innovation policy have recognized for some time now. I think the most obvious one is that um, for diseases where the patient population lacks the ability to pay, uh, we have little reason to believe that the patent system will do a good job at incentivizing the development of those treatments, right? So uh, in the global health area, which is where I came from, came to the law from, uh, we often talk about treatments or cures uh, for infectious diseases that are prevalent largely, although increasingly, um, uh, not exclusively in developing countries, they'd be extremely socially valuable. Um, but because the patients suffering from these conditions are mostly very poor, uh, their inability to pay for expensive drugs uh, means that they're not likely to be developed 
where private companies are the only source of innovation. And there are other problems as well that people like uh, Amy Kipchinski and Tala Syed have recognized. So they talk about the ways in which the patent system isn't set up to encourage the production of uh, non-excludable information. So we might want information about existing drugs, new uses, or uh, information about side effects. Uh, but the patent system just isn't set up to get us that information. And so there are gaps. And we need to look outside the patent system to fill those now, I know that we are moving rapidly in the direction of personalized medicine, or as, as we now have to call it, um, precision medicine. But even with those kinds of trends, surely there is enough commonality between uh, the uh, the folks who can afford these drugs and and those who can't, um, uh, particularly taking into account the existing insurance systems, that I'm I'm not entirely sure I see the the size of the problem here. And this is this is a wonderful question. I think on two levels. First, because it allows us to explore some of the areas of our health system which have a huge burden of disease but which we don't have really good drugs to treat them. So mental health disorders would be a key example here. So we know that mental health disorders um, are responsible for uh, an incredible disease burden, at least $300 billion in costs annually in the United States. Um, but we lack effective treatments for many of these conditions, and many pharmaceutical companies are getting out of the business entirely. And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, many of these inf infectious diseases, as I said, they're prevalent largely in developing countries, but not exclusively. And, and I think a very telling statistic here is that there's roughly uh, 300,000 people in the United States uh, suffering from Chagas disease. Uh, I say 300,000 not just because that's what the CDC is reporting, but because we typically think about the cutoff for orphan drugs at 200. Um, when the passage of that law in the 1980s. And so if you think about drugs for which there should be sufficient incentive for companies, these would be on the list. And yet companies are not in this business or they're getting out of it. And so that's really one of the puzzles for me that got me into this project. Yes, I do think it's an incredibly important project, especially when I think about how well your work here fits into a line of research uh, that's recently been called Innovation Beyond IP Law. Um, and uh, Lisa Ouellette, others at uh, the Yale ISP, you know, push forward. And also simultaneous uh, movements by Jamie Love and uh, Thomas Pogge and others to develop access to drugs. And, and I want to give a shout out to Terry Fisher and Talis Ayad as well, because I think all of them are sort of thinking about the fact that tropical diseases are often just neglected by the pharmaceutical apparatus because so much of its revenue comes from developing uh, the developed world nations. One thing I'm wondering is, you know, do you think there's a potential for interest convergence in the future as the spread of tropical diseases happens? Because exactly, you mentioned in the paper the Chinkunguyu uh, forecasting prize. And I think that, you know, there there is really going to be, if there's some forward thinking, um, a concern around the world, even in the richest regions, that the types of diseases that were once only burdening uh, the developing world are now going to be moving uh, there to the more developed 
adult world. Frank, what what a series of great points, and I'm quite pleased to be mentioned in the same sentence as that uh, that very eminent group of scholars. I, in this paper, I cite explicitly to those conferences that happened at Yale, and I really do see this paper as part of uh, that group of scholars, that group of projects, where the idea is to say we need to look outside of the traditional intellectual property system for innovation incentives. There's a whole range of things to explore. And I love that you bring up um, the uh, Health Impact Fund, right, which is this idea um, that what we can do is essentially create a prize fund that's apportioned on the basis of health impact, and that will encourage companies to invest uh, in drugs for many of these neglected tropical diseases. I think one thing I do in this paper is to say that, uh, wait a minute, we've already got a pot of money that's roughly the size of the Health Impact Fund. Um, and it comes through Medicaid, it comes through the rebate system, and if we think about how to use that existing pot of money, we might be able to achieve similar effects. Now with the second part of your question, um, I think you're, you're right, and I, it's so, it's very unfortunate that you're right. You know, in some sense, the fact that we've seen the spread of the disease vectors of many of these conditions, right, like um, the bug that transmits Chagas disease, like uh, many of the mosquitoes transmitting dengue, right, chikungunya, Zika, yellow fever, um, the more they spread into the United States and the rest of the developed world, uh, the more interest we are likely to and should see from pharmaceutical companies. Um, but I do worry that to some degree we are always playing, um, I've heard it described as public health whack-a-mole, and what we really need is sustained attention to some of these issues. And so I think that's one reason I focus on Chagas, because my fear is that is a large population in the United States by almost any standards, and yet there's still not much investment here. Yes, that does make a lot of sense. And I also am thinking that work like yours could really help change the conversation about high prescription drug costs, because I think there's been this very uh, media saturation around uh, things like the Shkreli and touring pharmaceuticals, jacking up the price of Daraprim, and then I think some uh, lazier uh, voices in the debate sweep into that the conversation about Savaldi and Harvoni, when in fact, if you look at the two, you know, it's, it's a very different type of uh, drug being developed with Savaldi and Harvoni, and, and it's a really cutting edge, uh, genuinely breakthrough type of therapy. And I think that, you know, being able to change the conversation from how do we suppress the price of this technology to how do we assure that extant models of financing are more responsive to actual health outcomes and health impact? That's a real credit to, to your work. And I'm wondering if you see any uh, the, the actions recently to require insurers to cover Cephalidae, would those sort of fall in line with the type of uh, proposals that you're putting forward? Or do you think that this is something where it can't be reactive, it has to be something that's more forward-looking um, in, in nature? 
Oh, there's so much there. And and uh, I guess to start off, I'll say that, um, you know, I'm working on this paper and, and the paper is arguing that we should be using prescription drug insurance as an innovation incentive in the first instance, right? Not just to promote access to medicines that already exist. And then along comes Martin Shkreli, right? And so we're in the middle of these enormous public debates about whether prices are too high and how to rein them in. And I'm arguing that we should be paying more for drugs for diseases that primarily affect low-income Americans. So I must be crazy. Um, and sometimes <laughs> I feel that way. Um, and, and this is where I think exactly as you say, when you align uh, Shkreli and Savaldi, um, this is where it's important to take a tiny step back and sort of see what I'm doing in this paper. Because um, on one level, all I'm really doing is identifying a bias. So I'm saying uh, the fact that we pay more for drugs that are prescribed through private insurance or Medicare as compared to Medicaid uh, means that we are decreasing incentives for companies to invest in drugs for diseases of the poor if you've got similarly sized patients patient population. And then one way to fix that is to equalize down, right? So if you just say Medicare, you've got to pay the same prices as Medicaid. Um, and I'm not opposed to that on principle, although in the paper I do explore what it would be like to equalize up. Um, but I think this debate over Shkreli versus Savaldi is so interesting. And I read um, there was a blog post on this subject from David Dranov and Craig Garthway, which is called something like, um, all low-priced drugs are alike, all high-priced drugs are high-priced in their own way. Um, and, and basically, the drivers here are very different from each other. And so Savaldi, in my mind, is, is almost a counterexample to my paper. It's kind of a drug that shouldn't exist. It's a cure, which is very rare, for a disease that primarily affects um, poor, marginalized populations. And so I'm really thrilled that we have it. And I'm um, a little frustrated with some of the discourse around the constant repetition of, you know, the $84,000 list price. Um, that's not what anyone is paying for it. Um, but it's a wonderful drug. And if we're criticizing Savaldi, and I'm on, on record elsewhere saying this, if we're going to criticize Savaldi, I think it's worth um, taking a hard look at many cancer drugs, which are costing over $120,000 a year, or even many of the rare disease drugs, which cost upwards of two or $300,000 a year. And these are taken for the rest of a patient's life, not for 12 weeks. So I think there is a conversation to be had, but I think Savaldi has been an unfortunate scapegoat. Let's turn now, if we can, Rachel, to the insurance parts of this puzzle that you are looking to leverage with some of your arguments. Um, and obviously, we've got several moving pieces here. We've got the Part D non-interference clause. Uh, we've got Part B, when you, you note in the article that the Affordable Care Act introduced the branded prescription drug fee, which kind of fits into this picture a little bit. Although I have to admit, when I look at Part B, the main activity at the moment, and controversial it is, is CMS dramatically trying to cut costs or cut costs dramatically for in-facility uh, prescriptions. Um, then you've got the expansion somewhat of the 340B uh, program, and you spend perhaps most of your time talking about Medicaid. 
Um, so I wondered if you could sort of wrap those pieces together for us a little bit and, and, and explain how that fits into your argument here. Yes, absolutely. So the one big part of this paper is to say that insurance in many ways functions just like a lot of other things we think of as pull mechanisms. Uh, and basically the idea is to create uh, or expand markets for drugs by saying to companies, hey, if you make a drug and you get it through the FDA approval process, we're going to reimburse you for it. And so we have laws um, that require different insurers to cover FDA approved drugs. And there are some limits on that, right? But, um, you know, Medicare is required by law to cover all drugs with, within particular classes. Um, Medicaid has to cover, um, again, essentially all FDA approved drugs to the extent that it decides to cover drugs. Um, and then there are ways in which the government balances that with the point of these programs, which is really to increase access, right? Um, so Medicaid, as, as the chief example that I focus on in the paper, um, it has long required pharmaceutical companies to remit to Medicaid uh, rebates for the drugs they sell to the program. And these rebates are, are based on the entity and the drug being sold. So uh, innovator drug companies have to remit at least a 23.1% of a drug's average manufacturer price. Um, and brand co and generic companies, excuse me, uh, have to remit just 13% of that price. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense from an access perspective, right? So innovator drugs are more expensive than generic drugs. Uh, Medicaid would prefer to recoup greater amounts on those medicines. Uh, and so if you wanted to design a system that would pay as little as possible for existing drugs, um, you might design a system that looks a lot like Medicaid. Um, but then again, it's precisely the fact that Medicaid pays less for drugs uh, than do private insurers or than do Medicare, uh, which decrease incentives for pharmaceutical companies to invest in drugs that would be primarily prescribed for low-income populations, especially relative to a system in which we paid for drugs, not because of the income of the recipient, but because of how good the drug was. And I just wanted to ask a question about the nature of the capital allocation process here, because one of the things I find really interesting in terms of the financialization of healthcare, um, just reflecting on the recent piece by Lowe and co-authors on potentially uh, uh, collateralized uh, securities based on um, drug innovation, things like that, and and also just going back to um, the types of projections that were done during the Affordable Care Act when people were talking about the potential impact of the device tax on whether investment would be made in new medical devices, is do we have a situation where capital is extremely fickle? And so even if there were very small differences, say, in a tax on a certain aspect of healthcare or in the expected returns because of changes in um, pricing policy by public authorities and others, that that could drive massive amounts of capital toward um, pharmaceuticals and devices? Or do you think that essentially um, there... It's hard, hard to explain what the alternative theory would be. I guess the alternative theory might be that there is just a uh, companies muddle through and there's not really these massive shifts in where capital is invested or not. Um, what would be closer to, to your idea of what's going on in terms of the financing, uh, both in terms of the private side? We, we're thinking a lot about public financing of healthcare, I guess, in, in our conversation. But in terms of that being as a leveraging agent or having a multiplier effect in terms of drawing in private financing. 
Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. And I think the best practical example of the power of insurance, of changes in insurance coverage or changes in insurance um, uh, reimbursement to drive investment by pharmaceutical companies is really the creation of Medicare Part D. This is the area where we've had the most empirical study. And so basically, to, to make a, a long and, and debated story very short, is um, that after the creation of Medicare Part D, um, where you've given many seniors a prescription drug benefit who previously didn't have it. And for others, you've suddenly moved them onto a system that pays more, right, for the dual eligibles. Um, they already had some amount of coverage through Medicaid, but now they're being their prescription drugs are being covered by Part D, which pays more. Uh, pharmaceutical companies took notice, and they changed their R&D so that they focused more on drug classes uh, which had a higher Medicare market share. Uh, and then some studies have suggested that there's, you know, between an 18 and a 40 percent overall increase in the number of clinical trials for those classes of disease versus what would have otherwise been expected. Um, there's been a lot of economic analysis and papers here. And so I, I truly think that there's, that's sort of the proof of concept for this idea um, that I'm putting forward, right? Companies certainly respond to public funding that's made available on the front end when we look look at the Precision Medicine Initiative, when we look at, um, you know, the cancer moonshot, the ability of the uh, president and the NIH to set the agendas for what's important and to drive companies there is, is important. But companies do respond to what happens here on the back end as well. The, uh, the second article that uh, we were lucky enough to read, the uh, Innovation Law and Policy Preserving the Future of Personalized Medicine piece. Um, Describes a an almost uh, chaotic, but I you you use a a, a kinder term, intersystemic uh, interactions of patent law, FDA regulation, and CMS Medicare rate settings, um, and you use as uh, as a case study uh, diagnostic tests, specifically uh, the BRCA um, uh, uh, breast cancer uh, gene test. Um, and there's some really interesting sort of takes here, both as to sort of, um, I guess, I guess you could describe it as a sort of uh, regulatory failure um, to an extent at the at the sort of the meta level, but also some really interesting observations about um, how uh, the uh, how our regulatory systems look at associational rather than causative benefits of devices uh, or um, uh, uh, diagnostic tests and so on. So I wonder if you could uh, set the, the scene again for us a little bit uh, on this article. Yes, yeah, sure. So this uh, paper about, which is nominally focused on, as you say, personalized medicine, diagnostics, uh, really is more general. It lays out my view of how these areas of law fit together. So um, what the paper does is observe that there's been a separate developments in three areas of the law that all affect uh, incentives to innovate in diagnostic technologies. So first, we've had the courts 
right? Specifically, the Federal Circuit and the Supreme Court、uh, making it more difficult, if not impossible, to get and enforce patents on these technologies.、Uh, then, second, you've got the FDA making moves towards regulating diagnostics, which it hadn't previously. Uh, and that drives up the costs of developing diagnostics and bringing them to market. And then third, you've got Congress and CMS,、uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, cutting reimbursement rates for diagnostics, and so that limits the amount、uh, that innovators, test companies, can expect to recoup in the market. And so the point of this paper and, and sort of my research more generally is to say that we can't consider each of these developments in isolation. If what we care about is innovation incentives,、um, whether it's good or bad, and I'm putting. Scare quotes around those words.、Uh, for the Supreme Court to walk back patent protection in this area, it depends on what else is happening. So people don't worry too much about limitations on patent protection for business methods, because we often think that there are sufficient incentives to innovate without patents. And whether that's true in the context of diagnostics depends on these external systems. It depends on whether there's FDA regulation, whether there's insurance reimbursement. And so, what's clear from this paper is that things are very different now than they were five years ago. So we went from a system in which、uh, things were fairly favorable to diagnostic companies. We had patents; they weren't regulated by the FDA. They had relatively healthy reimbursement rates, and we flipped all three switches independently in a very short time. I just wanted to weigh in and say that I just love the article, and I think it's so important that people operating in law, particularly. Perhaps the broader law and policy space. Look to the type of inquiry that you've modeled here, Rachel, because I think that so often the the rewards in the academy are disciplinary. So if you try to become the top torts person or the top contract person or the FDA expert. And what's really critical often is how do these different silos of law interact? And just as we, you know, value interdisciplinary scholarship in the academy, ideally we really should be thinking about how are these things coming together. I guess the other problem, though, becomes、um, if you do have this sort of systemic approach, one response is to do things like say, well, we need a new government agency. Like that's what I did in this Federal Search Commission article with Orrin Braha, and what Ryan Kalo did in a recent article on、um, calling for a federal robotics commission, and Andrew Tut. Called for an FDA for algorithms, so they're all going in this tech law direction, saying we need sort of a special administrative agency. I notice in your work you're not going exactly in that direction, and I'm wondering if you could sort of discuss: is this a problem potentially of the administrative state being overtaxed that we can't really have a special agency to deal just with personalized medicine, or is it because essentially we、uh, there are at the ready fixes that could be deployed in each of the three areas that you describe? Frank, it's like you've read the abstract from my next. Paper.、Um, so well done. <laughs> Um, so, so I do think some aspects of the lack of coordination here are a problem in the sense that they need to be solved, but others are just features of the system, and it、uh, doesn't make sense to deal with them as we are. So I'll give I'll give examples of each. So、um, one of you know my very next projects is going to talk about、um, the ways in which there is or is not a coordination. 
and within the executive branch in health innovation policy and how we should think about those questions. And there are, as as you suggested, uh, some fixes that can be deployed uh, which would make coordination between FDA and CMS or involving the NIH much more feasible. Uh, but on the other hand, it might not make sense to ask the same question about the relationship between the executive branch and the courts, right? So it would be a little odd if in, you know, 2012, when the Supreme Court decides Mayo v. Prometheus, they say, well, Prometheus's patents aren't patent eligible today because development costs are low and reimbursement is healthy. But if things change, we'll revisit the situation, right? That's not, that's not the purpose of Section 101. That's not the question we ask, even if it's sort of the overarching driver. Um, so there are ways to think about this uh, within each branch, um, even some between um, the executive branch and Congress. Um, but you're right that I, I haven't yet and I don't see myself calling for uh, the creation of an entirely new um, regulatory agency to deal with these. Although I have to say in the um, prizing insurance paper, I did suggest that a combination of the FDA and CMS as they currently exist uh, would be um, a good agency to handle uh, the type of insurance prize system that I articulate. So, so there are questions about um, whether the agencies we know are better than the agencies we don't know. Um, and there are a lot of very interesting administrative law, institutional design questions here. Um, and and I, I really look forward to exploring these in my next project. So here's a question that maybe you can ask in that context. Um, do you think it's easier to get agency coordination or even consolidation, or as Frank mentioned, a, a whole new agency, when the existing law is relatively thin. Um, and an example I would take uh, for that would be, for example, looking at mobile health, um, where you have the intersection of FDA device regulation, um, probably generally inapplicable HIPAA privacy, and sort of the beginnings of FTC effectiveness inquiry, you know, based on POM uh, and so on. Yet the example that you give, I think, is uh, uh, areas where you've got really quite thick um, uh, agency law um, and so less chance of sort of a breakdown. In the mobile health uh, area, uh, the various agencies have started to coordinate quite publicly and even, you know, have uh, some sort of little puzzling website uh, quizzes that uh, uh, developers can go, go through. So I, I wonder if there's uh, anything about the uh, uh, the quality of the law, if you like, that's going to drive uh, solutions or non-solutions here? Well, first, I think you have to link the FTC quiz up in the show notes because it's great and wonderful. Um, but I think you've, you've hit on something very important, which is that there are a lot of ways in which these agencies coordinate, some of it publicly, some of it behind the scenes. And then the questions we should be asking are, about whether this coordination um, is being done purposefully uh, with an eye toward 
towards sort of some combination of uh, innovation, safety, access, right, these concerns and considerations that we talk about when these agencies come together, or whether it's being done in a more reactive way as problems present themselves. And I think, I think, unfortunately, it's a little bit more um, the latter right now. And so what part of uh, my goal is, is to get out ahead of it. But as to your specific question about whether it's easier to get uh, legislation in this area where the law is thinner, when is it easier than impossible? Maybe. Um, I am uh, relatively nervous about Congress's attempts to make uh, law in areas that are technology specific. Um, when they've done it in the patent system, it typically hasn't turned out very well. Um, oftentimes, the law is obsolete by the time uh, it's signed into law. And so really, it makes the most sense in, in many of these contexts to delegate the authority to the relevant administrative agencies. And so if you're creating an administrative agency, um, again, I'm, I'm wondering whether the current climate is amenable to that. Um, although, as you say, in something like mobile health, it, it might take some more public incidents of, uh, of side effects coming out of the FTC's um, difficulty and FDA's difficulty in regulating these technologies under their existing statutory authority. Although I think I would say that there is more statutory authority available than is currently being exercised. And so if they chose to exercise it, we might then be in a slightly different situation. Great. And I have, uh, to close this out, I just have a few reflections on the IP, Intellectual Property Legal Academy, and the Health Academy, and, and how happy I am to see first that you're bridging these. I mean, there's very few people who uh, do that. And to notice a bit of a culture clash and just wondering what your thoughts are on it, which is that I think when I think about the scholars of intellectual property, especially in patent, it seems as though the big emphasis of the scholars is we have this incredibly burdensome intellectual property system that is weighing down innovation. They seem to be very much on the side of, say, Silicon Valley uh, in its struggles to change patent law. Uh, as opposed to, say, the um, pharmaceutical industry, which is very much committed to patent law. And I think also about people like uh, Dave Graywall, who've worked on synthetic biology and you know, the BioBricks Foundation, trying to say, oh, here's a whole new area of, of potentially medicine and beyond, where we really need to make sure that these basic building blocks are not encumbered by the patent system. And I f especially think that, you know, in terms of the personalized medicine testing, you got a lot of that type of vibe as well out of the IP Academy. But I think there's a different way of thought, a different approach to it that I'm seeing perhaps formatively in your article, perhaps more explicitly, that says, look, if you want something, you got to pay for it. And if you want to incentivize something, you've got to actually make it economically valuable in the relatively short term. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just sort of comment on that, or those broader currents where there's so much intellectual activity, especially I think sponsored by or out of Silicon Valley saying openness, you know, tear down the patent system. There's other things that can incentivize innovation. And yet we also see simultaneously a lot of the folks from the industry saying, wait a second, are you really sure what you're doing? You know what you're doing when you advocate these sweeping changes to the law of innovation? So I will say to start out with, I, uh, as a junior scholar, have felt so welcomed by both fields, uh, even as I reside sort of at the intersection of them, as you say. I'm, I'm always on that FDA panel at, at ASLME. Um, so there is some amount of, there's a great 
growing, I think, recognition that this is an important area of study. And it's so wonderful um, to be meeting with more and more people who do this kind of work. Um, more generally, I will say that I have um, somewhat of a luxury of focusing on health technologies. And so it may be, as you suggested, that there are uh, significant divisions within patent law in terms of how much um, different industries uh, need patents. And so we can, you know, if we take the Silicon Valley view sort of writ large that the existing system is uh, overbearing in many ways and should be cut back. Um, the response to that is, as you say, sort of, no, 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 what about pharmaceuticals? And then what I, I view as part of my job and, and other people in this field's job is to say, well, actually, we've built up a significant edifice around pharmaceuticals of public funding, public financing of clinical trials, exclusivity periods administered by the FDA, which are in many ways stronger than patent protection. Um, um, and there's a whole set of ways in which we have singled out pharmaceuticals and health technologies as being special, as being worthy um, of our attention. And so um, I think you're right that there is this um, culture clash and, and division within patent law. And it's very interesting um, to me that we haven't seen the statute itself sort of fracture over it the way we observed in, in copyright law, which is a much more technology-specific statute in many ways. Um, but what we've seen instead is a series of laws like the Hatch-Waxman Act, right, like the Orphan Drug Act, um, like the Biologics Act, which was part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which are explicitly designed to bolster different kinds of incentives in these areas. And so really, um, the fact that there are more people in this area uh, studying uh, these kinds of intersections, I think has just been, been wonderful, and I'm so excited about it. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Sachs for being on the show. You can find her on Twitter at R.E. Sachs. That's R-E-S-A-C-H-S. Great fun having you on the pod, Rachel. Thank you. Happy to be here. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>